0: If you were a head of state with an assassin in pursuit of you or a celebrity who had already lost a family member to a crazed fan, who would you call to protect you? I would call upon a special agent highly trained in weaponry, international subterfuge, surveillance and countermeasure techniques. You see, I would call upon Mary Beth Wilkus Janky. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. From my life, watching America. Watching my life, it's America. oh, 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 oh. The
1: fact that you are about to become a special agent demonstrates that you have the sense of purpose and the persistence to perform the unique duties of the United States Secret Service special agent. You were selected from thousands of applicants. You should be proud. You're now a member of an elite agency with a unique mission. Failure is not an option.
0: Cause you're in danger. 100,000 to Sparrow. Mary Beth wilkes jenke is the author of The Protector, a woman's journey from the secret service to guarding VIPs and working in some of the world's most dangerous places. She is a native Chicagoan, and she was attracted at an early age to the concept of law enforcement and then later psychology. She has earned a B.S. in criminal science, a master's in forensic psychology and a glutton for punishment academically, she went on no less to get also a Ph.D. in forensic psychology. She lived in Seville, Spain, before being recruited by the United States Secret Service, whereupon she became a special agent. She then turned her talents to private service, protecting both ambassadors and foreign heads of state. Indeed, if you are in need of serious protection. You want the talent, the savvy, the experience, the education, and the irrefutable brilliance of Mary Beth Wilkus Janky. Mary Beth, welcome to Watching America. It's my delight to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: What prompted you in the first place? I mean, the the very initial idea to pursue law enforcement uh, in any form was it a television program? Was it was it childhood play playing cops and robbers or something? What, 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 what did
1: it? Yeah, I, I I feel like it's a combination. It started with me, I think, being athletic and you know sort of being really comfortable around boys, you know, because it's a very male dominated uh, career. And then my junior year of high school. I took an elective that was sort of a combination of law enforcement and law, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. This is what I'm going to pursue. Like I found my passion. And so then I started looking at criminal justice programs and found a, a very reputable one through Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana.
0: And so was that innately a, a, a talent that you had? I mean, were you uh, analytical in high school, junior high school, even analytical of your parents perhaps when they you know, were buying you Christmas presents? Were you a person to be of an investigative nature?
1: Well, I, yes, in the sense that I am one of seven children and I'm the fifth of five right in a row, meaning we are one year apart. And so being the fifth, if you can imagine – Um, You know, there was only so much attention to go around. And so I feel that uh, as the fifth kid with my two younger sisters coming several years later, you know, I just kind of watched and observed and acted accordingly. But, you know, I was more of an observer than I was a talker. Even back then. So, yes. And I was analyzing my family from day
0: one. Well, when I think of a young lady going into special services for the United States, uh, you have to forgive me, but the image of Jodie Foster comes up in Silence of the Lambs, (laughs) you know, uh, surrounded by these big, bulking men at the CIA. And uh, I'll I'll do my best to feign a West Virginia accent, but I remember Jodie (laughs) Foster, Foster saying, you know, excuse me, sir, exactly what kind of man is Hannibal Lecter? And, uh I've got this image of you doing the same thing i've got a, this image of you being in in an elevator surrounded by these huge men but I may be an error I mean you may in fact be64 or something but um how much of that was similar to what you actually experienced going to work for the for the secret service
1: I think in my era so to speak which was uh the bush senior era so I was a 91 1991 1992. We were a huge variety. I am 5'10", so I am fairly tall for a woman. Uh-huh. Um, very athletic, so I, I seem taller. I'm thin. I'm a runner. Uh, so a lot of people think, oh, you're six feet tall. But, yes, some of the guys are huge, former military, some former cops. Uh, but we really had a wide variety. Some people were just got their, their degree and waited those two years doing whatever, literally whatever, some just working in a factory while they're applications were being processed.
0: So evidently the Secret Service pursued you when you were in Seville, is that correct?
1: No, that uh, is not true. I came back from working and living in Seville to Chicago where my parents lived. I filed applications with the DEA and the Secret Service. And then I moved to D.C. because I was like, oh my gosh, they told me two years, you know, more or less because I had worked and traveled so much around Europe. So they said, we really have a, a, quite a bit of work to do to check out all your travel. Um, you know, this is probably going to be a two year process. It's like, okay, well, I've got to get a JOB uh, to support myself while this all happens. So I ended up moving to DC, and my, all my applications were moved to those offices.
0: You very quickly uh, excel and and do well. Uh, You are in very exotic locations. You are living essentially at times a James Bond mission impossible slash life without question. Uh, And you are working with the Bush administration. You're doing everything for even down to looking after the grandkids at at one point or another. Yes. Uh, And then you go into private service. For instance, you work for the Versace family, certainly after the the loss of uh, Gianni. uh, Correct. in, In Miami. In both instances, you're working with personalities. In fact, in every instance of everything you've done, Mary Beth, you you are working with personalities. People can say, and just ask any medical doctor, physician – People can say to a professional, I want you to help me in this regard. And then, Mm -hmm. as again, if you ask a physician, they will say some people, some patients will systematically work against the advice and the very thing that they've come to a professional to help them for. Mm -hmm. Did you ever find that to be the case? When people are asking you to do security detail for them to protect them, that they are perhaps unintentionally dismantling the very thing that you're trying to do to preserve their life?
1: Absolutely, both unintentionally and intentionally. Tell because, us about it. Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're protecting the president of the United States, for the most part, we do. They they put our trust in us, and they say, "Okay, you guys know what you're doing." But every so often, you know, they shift. We're in the private sector. There are a lot of clients who are just resisting that "quote unquote" necessity to have protection, and so giving up driving, uh, sharing medical information, sharing friends or whatever, like there were, I had clients that just absolutely refused to tell us anything about their medical situation. So, you know, when I went to pick up a prescription for them or with them, I wouldn't look at it because then that would have made me responsible for their medical situation, which they wouldn't share with me, Yes, Uh, which is, which is crazy in a sense of, from what I understood, because this particular individual was flying to a hospital every month to be checked out neurologically, I was like, "I don't understand why you wouldn't share that with me because first of all, I'm trained. And second of all, like if you something happens to you, there's only so much I can do because I don't understand what's happening. You know I don't understand the the history. So, yeah, lots of different things from that to, you know, refusing to give up driving. That was always a fight. Or someone saying to me, please, I won't tell anybody, please let me drive today. I'm dying to drive. I haven't driven in a year, you know. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, not under my watch. You can maybe convince one of the other people on the team, but not me.
0: Well, let me ask you uh, regarding, you know, this. you are the cream of the crop. Uh, by your training when it comes to having something, somebody to protect uh, famous individuals. Mm-hmm. But there are many celebrities out there who will not necessarily get the highest rank and order of persons mm-hmm. to su- supposedly be their security. For instance, mm-hmm. with no disrespect intended, sometimes they'll just hire a hefty uh, bouncer from a bar who Correct. has brawn, but not necessarily that proverbial brain. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever witnessed that with, with other people and you just thought to yourself, this is a disaster?
1: Absolutely. You know, to me, that distinguishes somebody who is a bodyguard, which for me, by definition, is someone who isn't necessarily trained versus an executive protection agent. And you're right. A lot of times they're hired simply to discourage. And when something happens, it's it's uh, not a happy thing. And so. Being then my transition into the private sector, I have to admit, in my snobbery of being the creme of the creme and having that best training in the world, sometimes when I was working in the private sector that people that didn't have a lot of training or not very good training, it was a little bit frustrating. Um, So, yeah, I think that's not uncommon, although – Um, Or in addition, in this day and age, so many people have protection and they aren't really sifting through to ask people, what are your credentials? Have you ever done any training? And if you have, what training? By whom? Because there are some great schools out there and there's some great driving schools. And I think that's one of the most important skills to have.
0: Now you are privy to a lot of personal information and things that you can witness Uh, Mm -hmm. and I would imagine that this is not so much an issue with the uh, Secret Service because there's certain givens but when you are a private uh, protector of individuals Mm -hmm. and persons be it the Versace family or others I presume you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, is that correct?
1: No. um, Really? We never did, there was just a presumption that you were going to do your job and that means discretion and shutting your mouth, you know There were people that uh, would take off and talk to, you know, try to make their millions through some type of, you know, uh, rag, you know, like, uh, you know, inquiring minds want to know or go right. yes. uh, sharing it with different news sources, but we don't have to sign non disclosures.
0: That astonishes me because, I mean, obviously you are a reputable person with with high honor and, uh, and and good character. But there are persons out there who will sell their soul virtually for a quick twenty thousand dollars from a uh, a national, you know, um, magazine, which is a is is really just nefarious and and disturbing. Hundred percent.
1: And we had um, a person on my team, and I won't say which one, but she tried to blackmail the family uh, because she was going to go to the press with some information, and they were just like, "Go ahead."
0: Wow! Yeah! Wow. wow! Yeah! Well, that will certainly probably change the reputation of your of your line of work in the future. Yes. Um, yes. Let's talk about not specifically the Versace family, uh, mm-hmm. although obviously I would imagine they were in immediate panic after Gianni was assassinated.
1: Yes. Um,
0: the nation, the United States. I remember nine eleven, as many of us do, mm-hmm. and then everyone was vigilant. Uh, everyone was patriotic. Uh, out came all of the flags, and you know, um, don't tread on me, America. Everyone's very mm-hmm. security conscious. And then I said to my wife, I said, "This will last for a while, and then it will, it, it will, just recede, and there won't be that same sense of urgency or or concern." And sure enough, within a year, that began to happen. Um, when you have a family that's gone through a crisis or even an attempted crisis where somebody has has blackmailed them, do you find that initially it's a case of Mary Beth, Mary Beth, Mary Beth, we need you. Thank God for Mary Beth. Yeah. And then slowly it wanes as you go through the months.
1: Some people, yes, some people know Dr. Campbell because I worked in a very, what I would call, reactive society. Yes, in the Secret Service, we are proactive because we exist, you know, to hopefully not have anything happen. But most private sector jobs that I had were because of a situation that had already happened, like the Versace situation. So, you know, it's all of a sudden, oh my God, put together a team yesterday because we're desperate and they, you know, they're they're freaking out, they're anxious, they're paranoid, they don't leave the house. And so, You know, you're sort of on a pedestal. Now, some people, like the family I worked in Florida, made the realization because they were, in fact, billionaires, although living a very low-key and humble life, that they had three young girls that, if they were ever kidnapped for money, that that would bring them to their knees, including their companies. So they made the decision after the initial uh, alarm, because their house was uh, burned down, and it was determined to be arson. And so they made the decision to keep security indefinitely. Um, So it really depends on the situation and what created the need for the security in the first place.
0: Now, by the way, if you're going to call me Dr. Campbell, I have to call you Dr. Jenki. It's only fair. So uh, please call me Alan, and, and if it's okay, all right, I'll call you Mary Beth, if that's all right. Um, fair enough. Uh, cinematic moment, certainly. You are just uh, just, just at a high speed going through Port-au-Prince, Haiti, mm. in an armored Chevy. Uh, you've got a 9mm Glock uh, attached to you, and a Newsy... Uh, Uh, submachine gun. Mm -hmm. This immediately says that the only two individuals missing from this scenario are obviously Daniel Craig and Tom Cruise. (laughs) So how did you find yourself in that predicament?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, So they already had a team working down there for a year. Um, They started out with around 21 former Delta Force Navy SEAL, like top tier, um, former military agents down there. Um, once they brought Aristide back to Haiti because they thought he was ousted, you know, military coup. This could be a a potential coup situation once again. One year later, that had whittled down to 11 people. Only two of the original team members were there, and they were both former special forces medics. And so then it was a combination of... um, Former military CID, Criminal Investigative Division, uh, Air Force Criminal Investigative, it was a really wide variety, a couple of State Department agents, retired. And at one point, the detail leader, who was a former uh, U.S. Army criminal investigator, decided, you know what, um, we've been uh, working with female agents here in Haiti and training them because we also had a training mission there when we had free time. And we need them to have a role model, and so I'm going to see if I can find a female agent. And through connection, 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 he found my name and called me one day and said, how do you feel about doing a temporary duty as what we call vacation guy, meaning some guys were way overdue to head back to the States because their contract was being renewed and very piecemeal. So everyone wanted to stay and get as much money during that contract as possible. They finally got a longer term extension sure. and brought me down and, and told me you're going to be vacation guy because first of all, there wasn't a position open, but second of all, they didn't know whether coming into an already established 11 person, 11 man team, how that was going to fly. And within gosh, the first month of me down there, and I was supposed to be down there for a maximum of six weeks, two months, one of my teammates quit, but he didn't make the presumption they were going to hire me. But he came to me and said, hey, this individual's leading. How do you feel about a permanent position on the team? And I said, heck yeah. So I ended up staying almost nine months.
0: Mary Beth, one of the uh, sad things that many women experience is the necessity to or seeming necessity to prove themselves over and over and over again so when you find yourself in a male uh, dominated capacity uh, even in another location upon this mm-hmm. good green earth mm-hmm. do you do you feel that pressure to like okay i've got to in the few first few days prove myself to these males or are you uh, absolutely oblivious to that is it to something that you don't even entertain anymore
1: Yeah, I would say that because regardless of how far we've come as women, I feel that there is still that distinction of there's just a presumption that a man knows what he's doing, but a woman, they're just waiting for us to screw up, right? And I'm cognizant of it, but it doesn't change how I work. In other words, just like at the Secret Service, like I had a a male at the Secret Service, you know, one of my first assignments, we're sitting in a down room taking a break, and he says to me, you know broads, booze and Buicks. It used to be a great life until, you know, they hired women. And I looked at him and I just said, you know, that to me, it was about the best decision the service ever made. And we both laughed, but (laughs) you know, um, fast forward, you know, even 10 years later, a lot of guys just feel it, particularly in somewhere like Haiti, you are an 11-man team, and it's pretty dangerous that what's a woman doing here and how is she going to handle herself? And what if things go to hell? And, you know, I know what I'm capable of, but what is she capable of? Because women typically, you know, have a different image. And so I'm aware of it, but I I don't believe it changes how I work. I just feel like I've proven myself over and over, including in a training role, too, when I was training foreign nationals that were looking at me like, what is a woman doing here? I thought she was the secretary, you know, and I just do my job. And little by little, you almost watch the people defrost, you know, and they come around and they realize, you know, and then you gain their respect little by little. But it is different from the men.
0: There is this constant battle going on in public, in the public's opinion, about uh, the nature of the male psyche versus the female. Some will argue that there is a distinct difference. Others will say, nay, there isn't. The you know people are people and what have you. Uh, if we subscribe, even for a moment, to the former idea that there is a difference in general ways between the male and the female psyche, do you suppose, if you subscribe to that, and you may not, but if you do subscribe to that, do you suppose that there are any advantages? psychologically to being a female in the kind of work that you do?
1: I do depending on the woman of course but for me I think having in general more empathy and I think my ability or my facility to get along with people better like if I'm doing an advance meaning I'm going ahead of whatever whoever my protectee is and I'm setting up a hotel or I'm setting up a location, my ability to talk to people and ask for information or ask for favors usually comes a little bit easier than a guy that's like, I'm an agent and I want this done for me now. And you're like, uh, could you be polite, right? So I feel also that we just, people let their guard down when they're working with women, especially because, and it happened constantly, they're like, oh, I didn't even know there were female c- service agents. What what can I do for you? You're so nice. Um, and also one really pivotal moment was when I was interviewing for the job in Lima, Peru, which was my first job out of the secret service. And it got to the point I had made it through a series of interviews. And now the very person that I was going to be protecting the OAS organization of American States ambassador decided he wanted to interview me at the end of the interview. He stands up and he says, there's no protection, like the protection of a woman, hire this woman. And I was like. Okay, and he, what he was saying by that, particularly because we were going to be working in Lima, Peru, which is a very traditionally chauvinistic culture, is I'm the last person they're going to think is going to be carrying a weapon protecting somebody. So that really gives us yes. both an advantage if something goes
0: south. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, there are times that you've been able to um, use your femininity for, for purposes that were certainly advantageous perhaps for a mission and program, mm-hmm. uh, which has put you in very peculiar circumstances. For instance, you were once brokered for a dowry <laughs> of 500 cows to a Bangladeshi colonel. How did that come about?
1: Oh, my gosh, because I was working with an obnoxious teammate from Georgia who just thought he was so flippin' funny. And he is, but at the time, I barely knew him, and I was like, Dave... What the heck? Like I was because the the guy was the Bangladeshi. the Bangladesh was taking it seriously and even when he left for the air you know, we we always went to the airport the day they were actually leaving the United States and just spend time and say thank you and et cetera and they'd go through security and he looked back at me and he said to me This colonel, he says, you know, if you if you or your father change your mind, you know, the offer still stands. And I was like, absolutely. And meanwhile, my teammate Dave is laughing so hard he couldn't help himself. So, yeah, I mean, in those I mean, I I don't blush much, but I am certain in that moment, uh, my face was redder than a tomato. I could not believe it because everybody around him thought he was that this was possible.
0: This is Watching America from WHRV. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and it is my utter delight to have Mary Beth Wilkers, janky, who is also a doctor, I might add, another PhD, um, who has formerly worked uh, amongst other services for the United States Secret Service, but also has gone into private practice uh, protecting ambassadors and heads of foreign states and what have you. She is the author of a book, a new book, called The Protector. A Woman's Journey from the Secret Service to Guarding VIPs and Working in Some of the World's Most Dangerous of Places. I have a, a, a query for you, and that is, how do you stop immediately assessing potential bad circumstances? I mean, uh, I haven't really been in that great of danger in my life. I have been to the Middle East And being into some places where I had to be in an armored vehicle and what have you. And and you suddenly become very alert to packages and and book bags and all kinds of things Mm -hmm. that can be placed Mm -hmm. anywhere. And then I find that if I'm in those kind of environments for any length of time, it takes me a couple of days to readjust to say, OK, oh, no, I can relax now. I don't have to be looking at the door when I sit down. Um, You have been obviously in circumstances of much greater extended periods of time, even now. Marybeth, when you are stateside in the United States, are you inclined to want a particular chair in a restaurant or to assess circumstances when you get on a plane? Can, can you ever shut that down?
1: Um, I don't. I think at a certain point. Uh, I mean, in some ways, yes, I'm more relaxed. Like when I left the business, you know, to pursue psychology for real, like permanently – it was really hard for me to not to put my hands in my pocket because as, an, as one of the things you do as a protection agent, you always have your hands free in case something goes south. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But there are other things that people joke about with me. Is like, oh, I'll be like, oh, can we switch seats? Like say we're having a dinner in a restaurant or something. They're like, oh, yeah, I get it. I know you have to see the door. And um, I actually married a former Navy SEAL, and so he and I usually battle to see who's going to get the seat that has the view of the door, you know? Yes, yes. So I think there are certain things that just are innate. They become natural and, you know, muscle memory is really hard to break. And, you know, I might get in an elevator at a mall in a very, you know, luxurious place. I'm still thinking, well, what happens if that person pulls a gun or pulls a knife or tries to do this to me? What am I going to do? And so it's always like a what if, what if, what if, even when I'm driving.
0: How does that affect your nervous system when you sleep at night? Do you ever have nightmares?
1: I don't. Um, Fortunately, uh, I feel probably because um, I do exercise a lot. That's sort of my uh, go-to coping mechanism and rebalancing and sanity maintenance um, measure that uh, I also uh, just process things in my head constantly, whether that's through a a long run Or just, you know, life, I feel that I have a higher higher tolerance for stress, I guess, maybe because of the experiences I have had.
0: When you go to the cinema and you see a James Mm -hmm. Bond film or a Mission Impossible or even The King's Men
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: and you have a ridiculous scene like what transpires in a church in in one of those films, Mm -hmm. um, uh, do, do you have a visceral response to it or do you just say, oh, ridiculous?
1: It depends on the movie. Um, I feel that some movies have very good consulting and they've really done it well, including the specific weapons or the way they would show, say, a protection uh, team. But there are others where I'm like a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible. I, I love it. I, it's pure entertainment. I know it's outrageous, but I do think it's highly entertaining. Uh, so I think it really depends on the film. Um, so, yeah, like I'm trying to think of the one with Clint Eastwood and... Um, Renee, that they they were secret service agents, and I was like, you know what? Yes. Finally, there's yes. a movie that got great consulting. They did it right.
0: Right. I rem- I'm trying to think of the the name of it. <sighs> and, and undoubtedly, there are people driving in their cars right now, saying, "Oh, it's this," yeah, and they're yeah. yelling at us with the right uh, title in the line of fire. In the line of fire. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And what was nice about that it was the the premise was he was supposedly. Uh, in Dallas, in Dealey Plaza, when mm-hmm. the president had been killed and he was carrying this burden of guilt, which gave a great backstory to it. It was a very, very good film. Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, the average person. That would be myself and excluding you in a sense, and I mean that in the best sense, obviously. But all <laughs> of us who are listening, from time to time, we'll find ourselves in stressful situations and we don't know how to cope. You mm-hmm. are trained, Mary Beth Wilkes Janky author of The Protector, you are trained as a secret service agent to know how to cope, to know how to think, and in the best sense of the term, to be a survivalist. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for us in all manner of circumstances? I mean, there are some times when we can have uh, be threatened, obviously, as we have learned by by, um, viruses, we can be threatened by uh, terrorists, we can be threatened by uh, just mentally ill people doing crazy things. We never know what will transpire. What is your go-to methodology for coping with stress and perhaps imminent danger?
1: Mm -hmm. I will first say that maybe contrary to popular belief that there is rarely a day in some of the protection missions that I work that I didn't feel fear. Uh, Fear is very normal. It's a survival mechanism. And so there's a saying that says, do it scared. And you make the decision. I feel particularly what's going on now, but in life in general is throw what you want at me, but no way am I going to let that be something that takes me down. So I'm not going to let coronavirus take me down. I'm not going to get fat. Um, I'm going to keep routine um, And anything that happens. I mean, there's plenty of things that have happened throughout my life that I go, wow, this really is not pleasant, but I'm not going to let this take me down. It's partially self-pride. It's determination. It's being mentally strong. But I've also made that decision. I feel that, you know, okay, I might, this might stink for a while. This might be very scary for a while, depending on where I was in the world. But i have making that decision that I'm going to make it through. So I think that's first and foremost of not letting, you know, that take me down and curl up in a ball and give up. I'm never going to give up. And part of this because, one, I'm determined that I'm going to, make it through. And two, I have responsibilities. And I know that we're going to get through whatever we're going to get through, be that now or any tough circumstance. It's like, what is that going to look like? We don't know. But I've made that decision that I'm going to make it through the other side, not unscathed, but uh, might be a new normal. uh, But I'm okay with that. I'm pretty adaptive. but, But that's a decision I've made.
0: I heard somebody recently talk about um, an individual that had gone through uh, a a tumultuously bad time and that's being in the Hanoi Hotel uh, Mm. or the Hanoi Hilton, I should say. I've actually Mm. been there in North Vietnam. I visited it. I've I've been there. And um, there was one commanding officer who was held for eight or nine years. And Mm. he was interviewed by somebody and somebody said, well, could you tell who would survive and, and who wouldn't? Because he was the longest one to survive. In fact, he was the highest ranking officer. Uh, of u s personnel to ever be in the Hanoi Hilton mm-hmm. and so they wanted to you know obviously use him as as a source of propaganda, and he wouldn 't permit that in fact he he cut up his own face so that he couldn't be used in photographs to give the impression mm-hmm. of being treated right, so he would regularly abuse himself so that they they couldn 't benefit from from their campaign of 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 lies amazing but he said to the interviewer when asked. Who did he know would survive the best? He said, well, I can tell you who doesn't survive. It's the optimists.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a quizzical answer. The yeah. reason being, he said, he went on to elaborate, is that optimists want to say, oh, we'll be out of here in January.
1: Mm. Or
0: we'll be out of here at Easter. Or we'll be out of here at Christmas and what have you. And when that doesn't happen repeatedly, then they begin to fall and go under. Now, yes. this is his observation. It doesn't mean it's gospel. It doesn't mean it's necessarily true, but that was his insight and certainly we have reason to respect it. Uh, where he said that those who really do survive are the realists, not mm-hmm. the pessimists and not the optimists, the mm-hmm. realists. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say from based on what you've just said, you are most definitely a realist.
1: I would like to think so. I mean. And I agree with him that that's absolutely true because if you keep setting yourself up that, oh, this is going to be over, like you set those goals and it doesn't happen, the system can't take it because you're working and making it to that date and then all of a sudden, bam, the floor falls out from under you.
0: So you have spoken uh, about some uh, issues that you think are, are obviously good advice for us. And just to remind the audience, we're talking to Mary Beth Wilkes-Janky, who is the author of The Protector, A Woman's Journey from the Secret Service to Guarding VIPs and Working in Some of the World's Most Dangerous Places. Uh, you say that when you find yourself in a difficult situation to breathe, and then you go on to say that we need to pause between emotion and mm. action. What do you mean by that?
1: yeah. Because emotion is what can drive people to react badly. So a lot of times what I do is I separate the emotion from what my action is. It doesn't mean I don't have emotions that might not just want to punch somebody. Okay, I'm being honest. Like certain situations where you think, wow, um, you know, that's just this person just really – needs the little straightening up, but you take a deep breath and you separate the emotion. And so you're, you're responding as opposed to reacting, right? So if you, it doesn't mean that later you're just like, oh, you second guess yourself, but it's, and again, I haven't been perfect in my personal life, but when it comes to my professional life, I feel that I've done a pretty good job of not being that sort of emotional person because there's really no room for it, right? Uh, Being emotional Um, Can help, can drive you to think wrong, and your cognitions might drive you to make the wrong decision, and therefore could end up, you know, an international incident, for example. But, you know, um, I've made some decisions that got me, um, I'm not going to say punished, but there was an incident in Bogota where uh, we all got phone calls. There was like a call tree that there had been a bombing about two and a half, three blocks from my house, and a very um, High-end area where a lot of Americans would hang out, and one of my teammates called me. I'm like, "Yep, I'm I'm heading out the door now. I'll meet you there." And we got reprimanded because, um, although we got thanked uh, for helping people, et cetera, the idea with a lot of terrorists is let's have a first incident and gather as big of a crowd as possible so that the second incident will get that many more victims. And so that was sort of like that thank you, but why the heck did you show up here type thing. But it was instinct, and it was like, there are Americans involved, or even Colombians. I'm going to get there to help. And so, you know, it was one of those things where I had to take the emotion out of being scared. I did it scared. I just was like, well, I'm not going to not go. I'm not going to sit here, you know, on a Friday night um, sipping my wine uh, while there might be people out there that are injured and need my help.
0: I think many Americans would say that work can be a – well, almost like a healing bomb uh, for people because Mm -hmm. you get so caught up in doing what you do professionally that you don't have time to worry about whatever may be affecting you domestically. Maybe Mm. you're raising a teenager or whatever it may be. Did you find even though in your case – you have to entertain the possibility that somebody can come by uh, with a uh, careening car down a street and pull out an Uzi or a submachine gun and, and frankly blow you away. Mm-hmm. Did you find that sometimes your work, as heightened as it was with stress, was actually actually a relief from some other things that may be going on in your life privately?
1: Hmm. That's a really insightful question. Um, I think it would. I would say to that it really depended on where I was living and working at the time. Um, You know, because I clearly thrived on quite a bit of adrenaline. I would say places like Bogota and Peru and Haiti, uh, yeah, I I love the adrenaline. It keeps your brain super focused on what you're doing in the moment, and you don't really have that luxury of thinking what might be going on in your private life. So, yes, but... In other places, like when I was living in Sarasota, Florida, I loved my job and I was focused when I was there. But, man, when I was done, I was loving the environment, the beach, the food. So I think it really depended on where I was working and what might have been going on at that time in my own personal life.
0: We see this sometimes displayed in cinema again uh, with somebody who has a very important detail uh, that Mm -hmm. they're working on a mission. And there's the general public walking backwards and forwards. And then there's a character who looks very suspicious. And we see often the the agent or perhaps assassin with the finger on the trigger debating with with themselves whether or not they should pull the trigger and have time Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then very often, you know, we we have this reprieve of tension in the storytelling of the film. And it turns out somebody's just going to reach down and pick up their little child or something. Mm -hmm. Have you found yourself in predicaments like that in Haiti or elsewhere where you think – This, in a second, can turn very nasty, or this may be a total innocent, and you have to make an on-the-spot decision.
1: Yes. What's Um, that like? Yeah. um, I had an incident that I wrote about in the book uh, that took place in Lima, Peru. And I was guarding the Organization of American States Ambassador, and he, he was out at a party, and there were several other people from the delegation also there. So I'd say it was a group of about five or six And we were leaving for the evening. It was quite late, probably the wee hours of the morning. And as we came out of this party and got into our van, we had a driver. There was a man that came up, was very drunk, and uh, came from talking to a group of friends, older, very unkempt-like, greasy hair, black eyes, bloodshot, uh, dressed a little bit messy. And he started saying some very nasty things in Spanish, and I was telling all my group to get inside as I put myself in front of them. And he was spitting, and he had alcohol and uh, on his breath, and he was holding a bottle that he had been chugging. And he came very close to me, and my dear protectee was a little bit inebriated, so not very easy to control. And uh, I was trying to keep my cool, And I said, get in the car. And everybody was like, wait, what's going on? What's going on? I was like, are you in my head? I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Get in the van so that I can make distance with this particular individual, not get us all killed, because then his friend started coming over and he got too close to me and I shoved him back Mm. and I had my hand on my baton. But I was like, should I go for my weapon? Like this guy, he he called me a puta, which is, uh, you know, whore or a bitch in English, Um, you know. F you! I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to that guy over your shoulder, you know. And he tried to physically hurt me, and I shoved him back, and he fell down. And he slammed. He got up, and he slammed his liquor bar, bottle on the ground. Oh boy! And by the time, by the time, thankfully, everyone realized how serious it was, and they got in the van. And as I, you know, looked at the driver, I said, "I'm getting in that car, and you're going to go." And so I got in the car, I'm like go, 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 because. And then I still did not calm down till we got to the hotel. You know, he's screaming as we were leaving because I thought, well, once again, is this one incident and we're really being set up for a second incident down the road. Later, about two days later, I got called in by my supervisors, and they're like, okay, we read your after-action report, but you're not going to be happy about what we're going to tell you. I said, well, go ahead, and they said, that individual that you were dealing with was a member of the Black Panther um, terrorist group uh, or gang, gang I guess it would be called, and when that incident was happening with you, two police officers walked by at the end of the street, but they knew who he was and they knew his friends were, and they didn't want to get involved, so they walked away. Wow. And I was just like, what can I do? I just looked at him like, well, that just tells me that I can't trust the police here. Yes,
0: Thanks. Yes, you know, yes.
1: um, I was pissed off, and I thankfully had a partner that I could sort of vent with, but he's like, well, Mary Beth, like, like we thought, we don't, we can't really trust the police, so we'll just... Create different sources. Dude, don't worry about it. Like, don't I'm You know, I know it was a crappy situation, but we'll get through this. We're strong. We're good. We have good. You know, we're resourceful. And he did have some contacts that helped us. But what could I do, right?
0: Well, Mary Beth, your uh, experience is so diversified. One of the things you did is you created a stalking risk assessment <laughs> prototype. How does one go about doing that? And what has been your experience uh, dealing with people who are stalkers?
1: Yeah, um that was during my time getting my masters in forensic psychology at John Jay College in New York. And at the end of the program you choose either to do an externship, which is or that or a, a thesis and I chose to do field work. I'm a field work person clearly. And I sought out this Job and the stalking unit of Victim Services of Queens Criminal Court, and within that, um, you know that we were working a lot with both victims of stalking and victims of domestic violence. Those are two types of crimes that are very—they overlap quite a bit. And I was, you know, looking at some of the resources they had, and I'm like, but you guys have never really. Um, created any type of risk assessment. They're like, no, we've never had the time. I was like, well, great. This is a great project for me for graduate school, and it just gives me some time to do research on the side and maybe be able to inform us all a little bit better as far as working with the victim. So ultimately, the way I articulate my choice of pursuing Um, a master's in forensic psychology, was that I wanted to study the minds of perpetrators so that I could help those that have been victimized. And so it really helped on both sides to understand the mind and, like, what are the risks? What are the risk factors or protective factors, but more in this case, the risk factors? And then knowing the minds of those that are stalking, how can I help the victims better survive once it all ends or at least get through
0: it? How does one diffuse a stalker? Can it be done?
1: It depends on the type of stalker. It depends on if it's a known individual. I mean, now there's cyber-stalking, which is not my ballywick. That sort of happened after I got my degree. But we've helped dozens, if not more, in my time there uh, get away from their stalkers. A lot of times, Alan, what happens is the stalker finds another person that they get obsessed with so it's just
0: transference of obsession absolutely yeah and it sounds horrible
1: but as somebody you know if they one stalker that goes you know what i know this sounds horrible but better her than me you know that it's off me now and i can breathe i mean but i'll tell you for some people the scars are very long because the average stalking case is somewhere around i think three or four years wow yeah. yeah and it really again it depends on the type if you've got the or what they call the erotomanic type those are the type that typically go after the hollywood stars and they are very delusional they're a little bit mentally uh, challenged mm-hmm. they really believe that say david dave letterman had one um
0: Yes, in, in Derry and Connecticut, actually. Yeah,
1: you remember. Yeah. And she yeah, West... was busted as his Porsche or something. I don't right. know. She but... used to
0: follow him to Westport. I, I know Fairfield County very well in Connecticut. Yeah. In fact, you worked in Derry and you did postdoctoral did. work there. I did. But, uh, David yeah. Letterman had this woman repeatedly break into his house, and to his credit, but also danger, he exhibited tremendous mercy and grace on her uh, multiple times until it, it got to a point it had to be taken care of. Indeed. Um, you're working What, what? Actually, you were at the, the Southfield Center for Development there. Uh, I did. Doing postdoctoral studies. What, what, were you, what was your main pursuit?
1: Well, it was a child and adolescent-centered focused clinic, although we worked with families as well and some adults, but the focus was children and adolescents. And so what my main Responsibilities were were individual therapy with kids that were challenged with various things, whether they were struggling um, with anxiety or depression or anger. Um, some children had behavioral problems; those were the younger ones, typically. I worked typically with the older ones. I did group therapy. These were groups that were grouped in kids that were challenged by ADHD, that were on the autism spectrum. Um, more by diagnosis so that we were uh, working in small groups with kids that were experiencing similar symptoms. And I also did individual consults just depending on what was going on. Sometimes in the community you would do, say, a presentation or a consult at a nearby business um, but it was quite varied i also did something called assessment that's where you're it's called the psychoeducational assessment and let's say you think wow my child my child might have a learning disorder or he might have adhd so we do various t- we use a protocol we call that various uh, testing measures uh, to determine what might or might not be going on with that child
0: well now as we speak dr Jenke, you <laughs> teach as a professor at- of psychology uh, in the uh, psychology department at George Washington University in DC. Right. So you're back in DC again, familiar ground where mm-hmm. you're comfortable. Um, in in every field, there are certain presumptions that students come in with that you have to dispense with at some point, gingerly mm-hmm. perhaps, but you do have to say, no, 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 that's not the way it is. When you have your students who come in to study psychology with you uh, mm-hmm. at George Washington University, what are some of the myths that they have assumed that are not true that you have to dispense with?
1: Right. That is one – you're talking about the myths about psychology itself? Uh,
0: Well, uh, in particular in relation to criminal psychology and uh, specifically into the analysis type of work that you've done before and your particular, if you will, slant on it having been in uh, certainly the Secret Service. I mean –
1: Yeah yeah um so yeah it, I teach a class called the Psychology of Crime and Violence, and I teach that in the fall. Uh, I taught it last fall and i teach I'm teaching it in the fall and I would say that because I made this a very interactive um, how else would I say I made it a very interactive course, but very realistic, often a professor is teaching more theoretical and so we talk about oh a certain percentage of Uh, criminals in jail are this disorder, that disorder. Well, what I I started out the course doing is I was like, okay, this is going to be very real, and I want students to not think that this is going to be theoretical. This is going to be practical. They're going to be able to touch, taste, and feel psychology of crime and violence and be able to talk about it. So I started out, and I assigned them a chapter of a book by a former FBI profiler, and the title of the chapter was called The um, Vampire Killer because this particular individual, albeit schizophrenic, uh, felt that he needed other people's blood in order to not die because he was apparently, according to him, dying from a certain disease where his blood would turn to chalk if he didn't get the blood of other people. And I thought, okay, you know, I know I'm starting this out a little gory. We talked about really graphic stuff because if you want to learn about who is perpetrating and understand, you have to be able to sort of stomach some of the stuff that's going on. So, you know, there was a lot of dispelling of, uh, gosh, I thought a psychopath was like this or I didn't realize that, you know, narcissism overlaps with psychopathy. And uh, so it's really a lot of, and then destigmatizing some of the stuff that they believed because of, you know, maybe some Netflix series. Um, And, you know, it got to that point about, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the way through the semester when they realized, like, I'm not judging you. I want to learn from you too. Like, tell me your opinion that, you know, they were able to have those conversations. Look, I had a question about this. Like, I really kind of thought it was this way, but from watching this, Particular, whatever you assigned, this movie or this episode of Forensic Files, I think it's this. Can we talk about it? It's like, absolutely. What does everybody else think? So dispelling some of their own things and not fearing bringing something to class to discuss amongst everybody.
0: Do you have children?
1: I have a stepdaughter.
0: A stepdaughter. Mm -hmm. With your husband having been part of Special Forces, uh, a Navy SEAL, Mm -hmm. with you, with your very particular expertise, uh, having worked for the Secret Service and, and as an independent contractor of security. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, Liam Neeson with, uh, you know, with Not Without My Daughter. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> know. I'm getting images of that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know who you are, but I'll find you <laughs> when I do. If you touch my daughter, I'll kill you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I've got images of that uh, as a very ardent parent, perhaps, on your part. I mean, how has... This knowledge of the darker side of humanity affected your parenting rearing skills if you will or, or has it perhaps you know the, you don't correlate between them?
1: Yeah I know I would say it absolutely has it, more in a way that I hope her name is Isabella more in a way that I hope Isabella you know is not just not appreciative per se but might help her once because she's in college now she's completing her freshman year um, she's got a lot of common sense, but you just really hope that from the way we what we've done in our past may seem a little bit overprotective, but we can only hope that that has then parlayed into her being cognizant of what people are, people are capable of and what could happen. You know, I think sometimes she can be a little bit glib because she's got a high level of self-confidence, but I think she really does think about um, you know, some of the skills we've taught her, be that self-defense, um, Mike's gone a little bit further in some of his skill set with her, but, um, you know, that she feels confident enough that she would be able to protect herself if something were to happen, which we know there are a high number of incidents on college campuses. So, you know, they're, they're, I would say that at this point, yes, I worry about her when she's at college uh, but I also have faith that, uh, you know, there comes a time, just like with my parents, had to, you have to let them go and hope that all that work that you did for those first 18 years, um, in my case, I knew Bella since she was five, uh, that, that, is, that she listened and that she's going to use those skills. And I, I really believe she has.
0: Of all the experiences you've had, what is the resounding most important lesson that you have learned from one of them?
1: to not doubt myself.
0: And how do you arrive there?
1: Just keep doing my job. You know, I mean, people are always, whether it's teammates or people in general, I think the world is full of people that want other people to fail. That might sound cynical, but um, I've been trained really well and be that in the field of uh, protection, uh, in the field of forensic psychology or in the field of clinical psychology, Just know that what you're doing is the best that that you can in that moment.
0: Well, Mary Beth wilkes Janke, Dr. Janky, I have to tell you that I am so proud to live in a land that trains people through the Secret Service for the caliber of insight, perseverance, strength, and wisdom that you have. You have been an utter delight here on Watching America. I thank you so much. I wish you great success with your book. And when you come out with another one, please contact us because I would love to have you back here again. Marybeth Wilkes-Janky, God bless you. And thank you so very much for spending time with us on Watching America.
1: Thank you for having me, Alan. It's been an honor, truly.
0: Thank you. Been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by RazorLight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd, Heather Mazzoni is Chief of Content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.